Welcome, everybody, to the American Shoreline Podcast. I am Peter Ravel. I'm the co-host of this show. And I'm Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host of the show. And what a cool day we have uh, and, a, and a great show we have for the listeners out there uh, because we get to meet Leslie Ewing. And uh, Leslie, I don't know, I, I feel like I should say Dr. Leslie Ewing uh, because I believe you are Dr. Leslie Ewing. Um who is going to be hosting a brand new show on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, which I think is could be the coolest one we have. Yeah, well, uh, we've we've talked about it before, but the world of coastal literature, the books that are written, the research that is done, the stories that are told, uh, this really gets to the bone marrow of why we love the the coast. There's a there's a there's an emotional side to it. There's there's a scientific side to it. There's so much knowledge and, and human experience all bundled into one. So we knew we needed to have something along these lines. Leslie pegged it. She pegged she it. Did. She 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 came up with the idea. So it's her show. <laughs> so we look forward to a, to this great conversation with Leslie. But first, Peter, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. Our sponsors uh, on the American Shoreline Podcast Network and for Coastal News Today, LJA Engineering, a fine uh, established outstanding engineering consulting firm uh, works all along the Gulf Coast of the United States, LJA Engineering. Our good friend, Bill Worsham, is the coastal engineer uh, director for that firm. Uh, get in touch with Bill, lja.com. Great firm. Uh, Dune Doctors, a great restoration firm uh, out of Pensacola, Florida, led by Frederick Barrasset, dunedoctors.com. When you're looking to put the shoreline back together using plants and native plants and working with living shorelines, Dune Doctors, great company, dunedoctors.com. And uh, last, TI Coastal Services from Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, specialists. I've worked with them in the past. Boy, are they good. Uh, very unique, very dedicated and focused guys who know how to design projects that fit the budget of local communities. Uh, get in touch with Chris Gibson at TI Coastal Services, TICoastal.com. All right, Leslie. So you're, you're coming at us right now from the beautiful Bay Area. How is it out there? I am coming from the Bay Area and it's nice and sunny and calm. I was in Washington, D.C. this morning. It was 15 degrees, and thanks to modern transportation and such, I was able to go from 15 degrees to about 45, 50, balmy. It's like I went from winter to spring in the blink of an eye, from coast to coast. (laughs) From sea to shining sea, Leslie. It's great to have you uh, on the American Shoreline podcast, but it's even better to have your voice coming soon to the American Shoreline Podcast Network, where you will be hosting the Shore Words Podcast. Where, how, you came up with this awesome name. What, where did that come from? How did you think of Shore Words? So I was throwing around a bunch of different things like beach worms instead of bookworms and different things. And then I listened to your podcast. You two were talking about what you wanted the American Shoreline Podcast Network overall to be doing. And I think it was Tyler said he wanted to start looking at the coast and he wanted to look shoreward. I thought, looking yeah. shoreward, huh? Let's look for shore words. So it came from there. Y'all were my inspiration. <laughs> How about that? That's pretty cool. Now, that's uh, true. Tyler has been talking about uh, that from the very beginning about what we want to try to bring a ocean inward perspective as opposed to a landward outward. Uh, yeah. 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 Shore words. Great. That's cool. Well, it it's of course it has the pun, which is uh, which is wonderful. But it is true, uh, you know. There's something uh, powerful about being in the majority space of our planet, the the blue part, and and looking at the shore, uh, which of course, as land dwellers and as uh, as 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 people who who live on the land, we we oftentimes think that the land is is the majority space. We're biased. We're totally biased. <laughs> I like mountains. <laughs> I like dirt. I like to garden. You know, I mean, there's some things I yeah. got. I got to admit. Absolutely, we you know. we tend to forget that we came out of the soup of That's the true. sea. But Leslie, uh, tell us tell us a little bit about uh, how you you came to the idea of coastal literature. I mean, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you're you're 
a doctor yourself, you're well studied, you work as a, a, an engineer, a coastal engineer, but uh, this this universe of literature, how did you how did you come to decide that you wanted to cover that? Well, at the um, conference in Galveston where Peter and I were talking, he asked me if I wanted to do a podcast and my initial reaction was, heck no, I just don't have the time. And the second one was that all the things that I do for my job are things I can't talk about on the podcast. And so I thought, well, this is kind of going to be boring. And then because I kind of wanted to say no, but I didn't want to hurt his feelings, I threw out this idea of <laughs> <I'll take it. laughs> I threw out the idea of talking about coastal books. And I thought he would say books. And he said, Well, why? And then as I started to answer that question of why, I got interested in it because books are so transformative in many ways. They're, they're certainly transformative for the person who writes them. My gosh, to put down that much dedication and just spend that much time on one focused topic is incredible. Yes. Yeah. And then if people do it well, they transport you someplace. And Man, I, do, I love the idea. I absolutely do. And I think exactly for the reason that you just said, which is uh, the level of effort that goes into writing a, a great fiction novel that is, uh, is somehow about the coast or nonfiction writers and researchers. Um, anytime people, you know, take on the heavy lift and do the work and get it across the finish line, um, I think is valuable. And there is a lot of insight there. And uh, yeah, I think that this idea of looking at literature and and books and talking to authors about what their insights are is such a great idea and and brings a flavor to the discussion that I don't think we get when, you know, no offense to, you know, like I do a local government show that's pretty densely political policy kind of stuff. It, it, it's a certain understanding of what's going on, but boy, you miss a lot. Uh, and I think you can really open the door, Leslie. To I think there's cool value stuff. in all of this discussion, and and books are part of it. As is the the motivation for many of the books I'm thinking about talking about are the politics today and what's going on with the the coastal world. And um, I just finished a book on the plane coming home called World in a Grain. That's about how little sand we have left in the world and how much of our our 21st century life lifestyles depend on the sand that we've taken from ancient beaches and modern day beaches. And, you know, and then it's also been fun because now when I get on a plane or get on a bus or meet new people, I've mentioned the podcast, of course, and the American Shoreline Podcast Network, hoping that people will start looking for it. But then I ask them, what are the books about the coast that have inspired them? And I've gotten this great list of people. People uh, love talking about books that they like. That's the other thing. So it's easy to elicit information from oh, all yeah. sorts of people. I've got a list longer than I'll ever be able to read. But it's it's a great way to expose people to new books that they haven't read yet. I, I think that you, you're getting onto something that I know is certainly true with me, which, you know, I'm, I'm of the uh, millennial generation, which means that uh, we are reading less and consuming more and more streaming content, more and more podcasts, more and more Netflix and YouTube. But there's a relationship you develop in a book. It takes longer to read a book. You really get to know the characters. You get to know the author. You, it, they, they become your friends. Uh, and that's a really powerful thing. And um, I know that uh, and, and not to mention, you not only do they become your friends, they become your trusted friends uh, in some cases, or or distrusted in others. But um, you get to know them in a in a really deep and rich way, and um, the opportunity to extend that relationship and learn more about the author, learn more about the method of composition and and the the process of researching and writing, I think will just be so fascinating. For for all of our audience that reads these coastal books as part of our as part of the other part of our life, and you know, Peter was talking about this earlier, where uh, you know we're well we're well rounded people. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a 
you know, work in the coastal hotel industry, the hospitality industry, or the uh, tourism promotion industry, or if you're an engineer, you're you're going to read, uh, you're going to listen to music, you're gonna you're gonna watch film, and learning about these things and how they overlap and overlay with with your life is just going to be really interesting, Leslie. I hope so. That's the plan. <laughs> you will no doubt make it very interesting. So, Leslie, I think for the benefit of our audience, uh, uh, you've got to tell us a little bit about uh, what you've done as a, as a professional on the American Shoreline. Uh, can you can you introduce yourself uh, from a professional perspective? And you know what 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 was the thing that got you to to the shoreline and and made it part of your professional life? I'm a coastal engineer by training. I started as a civil engineer. I started doing environmental work and didn't even realize that there was this thing called a coastal engineer. I grew up on the eastern shore of Maryland. I'd go to the beach every summer. I swam every day in the summer. I swam at the beach. I just, swimming and being in the water and being around the water was just part of my existence. And never realized there were professions that focused on the bay or focused on the ocean. So you went to, you went, you went to college where, where was your undergraduate? I know you're in California now, um, but uh, when did, yeah, give us the sort of the geographic transition from East to West coast. Sure. Um, my undergraduate degree was in civil engineering from Brown university up in Rhode Island. So I got to know parts of New England from that experience. I went immediately to graduate school in regional planning at UMass Amherst and wanted to get that engineering sort of urban city development, how we use the world connection going. Yeah, I get that. Worked for several years as an environmental consultant um, on various engineering projects going on with uh, a firm that was doing work on energy work and environmental work. So looking early at ocean energy technology systems, you know, left there and worked for the Rural Electrification Administration. Wow. So it, it, I love the blend of of technical uh, engineering expertise with planning, which is an inherently political environment. And then you got your PhD. When did you get your PhD? I left D.C. and then went to Berkeley and got an uh, master's degree in coastal engineering. And then a couple of years ago, I went to USC, University of Southern California. Go Trojans. Yeah. And, <laughs> Go Trojans. and got my PhD there in uh, coastal engineering, civil engineering department. This is what makes me so excited about your show and why I'm absolutely excited about a lot of the hosts on ASPN is the depth of experience that you bring. Um, having worked and lived uh, along the American shoreline and invested your professional energy in a variety of different contexts that are in the land water interface, I just, I have this faith in the world about the depth of insight that you bring um, is is rich, and and I, I tell I think I've had this conversation with a lot of the hosts. Uh, I say, you know, you're, you're familiar with your journey, you're familiar with your path, um, you know what you know, and there's a certain con I don't mean contempt in a bad way, but you know, familiarity breeds contempt. A lack of appreciation for how much you know. Um, because it's natural and you are with it and you're fine. Um, and I just think when you, when you become the host of the show and then you take a subject like books, I cannot wait to see where your mind goes. I think it's going to be really interesting. And, and Leslie, if I can just jump in here, uh, I'm, I just happened to, to peruse, uh, your LinkedIn page really quickly. And I noticed that, uh, your proposed research topic for your PhD at, at the university of Southern California was community resilience to coastal disasters from sea level rise to tsunamis. That sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Did you pass? 
<laughs> I guess you I did. did. Yeah. <laughs> Way to go. I um, I ended up going to a lot of disasters. I um, started out when there was the hurricane in Galveston or Hurricane Ike. Went to Galveston and thought, okay, this is a disaster that I can use and kind of frame into the community resilience aspects and learn about. And then there was a small tsunami, not small for them, but a small a tsunami in Samoa, American Samoa, Tahiti area. So I went to the um, American Samoa and Samoa and looked at the damages there and and started looking at the contrast between these island nations and Galveston and the resilience that Galveston had by being able to draw upon resources throughout the U.S. and the islands needing oh, yeah. to, everything had to come in. Right. Huh. Huge challenge and sim- you know, things as simple as can you get access to fresh water as sea levels change and groundwater uh, quality changes. I mean, they're at the base base level of existence in some of these places. But also for getting out of the, getting immediately recovering from the disaster, American Samoa lost most of its power. And so they couldn't have people, electricians and power people get in their trucks and drive into town and help them get things going again. People had to get on ships. People had to get on airplanes. You couldn't borrow equipment from the state over. Guam was not going to suddenly send stuff overnight to them. It's one of the amazing things about um, what happens in hurricanes nowadays is, you know, as the storm is approaching and everybody's watching it on CNN, there are hundreds, if not thousands of linemen trucks. Mm -hmm. Uh, The electric utility industry, uh, and I don't know that, I don't even know how this works, but as soon as the damn storm passes, there is a caravan of of utility people driving in and putting up the lines. And if you're on an island, uh, yeah, there's nowhere to go. You can't do that. There aren't, you know, a thousand uh, trucks ready, ready, willing, and equipped to just drive around the island and start putting all the lines back up. It's a completely different process. Yeah. And over the years, so many utilities in, in particular developed mutual assistance agreements. And so when something bad happens in California, folks from Texas are going to be right there helping us, just like the fires. We had firefighters from many places outside the area. Um, that, that idea that we can mobilize people to um, respond is an incredible resilience measure that we have in the United States that is really great. And the coastal systems have, have been able to rely upon that in a lot of situations. So uh, in, the, in the process of putting that research together, I, of course, you had to dive into the literature there. And uh, what were what are a few of the uh, a few of the of the books and and research papers that were particularly important in in your work there, uh, working on your PhD? Oh dear, um, the UN has done a lot of stuff on coastal resilience, and so I, I looked at a lot of the work they were doing. There's also a lot of of work already done on engineering resilience that was useful to draw upon to look at specifically what would work within the coastal areas. And then putting together, what I ended up doing for my part of my PhD was putting together the interdependencies of the different um, community services that people depend on. And that was just a lot of reading of papers mostly of what does an electrical system need? Well, it needs power to keep the power going. When you've got a transportation system, what happens when you lose power and you can't pump gas, you can't have stoplights, you can't, where do those things over, over, overlap? And putting together diagrams of just how the different utilities each depend upon the other. You can't move trash from an area unless you have gasoline for the trucks to move the gas, uh, move the trash. You can't have gasoline if you don't have electricity to work the pumps. 
that type of thing. And, and lift stations and sewers and, you know, even the water system doesn't function without the overlap of the, you know, obviously the power industry. Right. And how all that gets put back together again. Man, so Leslie, um, you've been working, uh, you, know, you grew up on the shoreline, or, uh, you know, in the Chesapeake Bay systems, Chesapeake Bay system and out to Berkeley and working in the California Coastal Commission for, for years. Uh, you have, and I think if I might if just mention, also editor of Shore and Beach Magazine, right? Oh, I thank you. Yes. <laughs> Which is the premier journal of shoreline management in the United States from ASBPA. And, uh, you know, I get every time I get that thing, it's like, oh, my gosh, this is so much I don't know. It's, and, been, and it's every day. Been in publication for, I, I think, eight, like 80 years? 80 years, I think. Yeah. Shore and Beach. 1933. 1933. But, uh, Leslie, in, in stepping back, um, how do you feel about what's going on on the American shoreline? I, it, you know, this is one of those reflection kind of questions. And, and what do you think? I mean, when you wake up every day, are you becoming more and more optimistic about where things are? Are, are, you, are, you, are you feeling pessimistic as you're after these decades of work that you've done? I mean, how do you, what are you seeing out there? What matters and what, what, what's sort of driving your, your, uh, you know, your interest professionally, your emotional sense of what you do day in and day out. What do you, what, how do you feeling about it? Well, I grew up when I took the coast for granted. And I knew that we could get to Ocean City and drive there for an afternoon and go to the beach. And I think that I'm very encouraged by the number of people who are working to make sure that experience I had when I was young is available to grandchildren and great-grandchildren into the future. I think the there's there's a lot to look forward to and a lot to see as being promising. The people are recognizing the threats to the shoreline and trying to come up with constructive ways to balance the many competing demands we have on the coast now. I mean, to some people, it's their backyard. They, they live right on the coast. They look out at the ocean every day, and that's their, their backyard goes out into the sand and into the water. There are other people for whom it's, a, it's the, you know, the, the weekend, the vacation that they look forward to every year. And with more and more people wanting that, trying to get that balanced out. You know, and, and when you talk to people who, you know, in, in, in meeting Tyler's family and uh, also Jenna's family and other other just friends that I know, people who were regular, who regularly went to the coast with their families as they grew up, the indelible memories, the depth of connection is really tremendous. Um, it is a, you know, people identify at important points in their life uh, around their experience on the American shoreline. And I don't know, maybe that's common in other recreational settings, but I kind of don't think so. I think there's something special about the the way in which we interact with the coast. I, I think so too. I mean, I think some people it's the desert, some people it's the mountains, and some people it's the ocean and the coast. There's a Japanese term that I, I always massacre how to say it, but my version of it is nagista, which means the triple juncture between air, water, and land. And you know, when you're getting close to the coast, you smell it, you know, it's there and then you can hear it and then you can see it and then you can get in it. I mean, it's just such a, a, an incredible experience that it just takes over all your senses. And then it, to me, that's just a really magical thing that I, I, for my work, I often see the coast when it's not in the best condition because we're looking at areas that need something done. But I still enjoy going to it. Even if I see it and it's worst, it's still pretty magical to be able to watch the waves, to see the power of that ocean, and to know that we can be so close to it. Yeah, I'll tell you, that's beautifully said, Leslie. And boy, is that true. I mean, it's going to uh, the beach and uh, getting, you know, being in it, as you said, getting in, and especially when you, 
when you start to wade out into the water and it starts to it it surrounds you and you you become you actually make that transition from the land space into uh like i said before the planet's majority space into that water it's almost it's almost like being unborn it's like the <laughs> opposite you know what i mean it's it I mean, like we, that's where we came from. It's like going back to the womb in a, in a, in a way. And it really is. It's, we had a, a podcast earlier with Sean Thompson, uh, who, uh, is a world champion surfer. And he was on uh, the next swell podcast with Rob Nixon. And he talked about the, the therapy of paddling out through the waves and, you know, even in times of just emotional, uh, hardship, uh, the the power of the sea kind of over overcomes your individual uh, uh, problems in a way, and and puts puts things back in a perspective that is really humbling, but also awe inspiring and beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, and boy, I love that! I love that Japanese term. It really it gets to something really magical and powerful about the coast. Well, I'll have to learn how to pronounce it correctly next time. You know, Leslie, I want to talk about about books and uh, let's dive in. I, I think when we were knocking around the idea of the show and you had uh, proposed doing this show from the perspective of authors and writers uh, and then sent in, uh, you know, sent over a list of uh, potential authors that that you are going to be able to speak with, I, I was blown away and uh like I say, became a fan. I want to hear this as an audience member. I, I would love to hear from uh, Dr. Sylvia Earle. And, uh, and well, who are you looking forward to interviewing? I mean, obviously there's effort involved in all of this and setting them up, but what, uh, what's, what's on the horizon in, 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 as the host of the show? And what are you looking forward to? So I haven't gotten anyone yet to commit to this, and I've only invited one person so far, who I think would be a great lead-off person to put some of the coastal world into perspective and coming at it from the perspective of disasters. So I'm, I'm not going to start out with all the bright and fun parts of the coast, but I'm hoping that she will be willing to talk on this podcast. I've, um, I've got feelers out for some various people who write cookbooks about the coast. Um, I'm hoping to get <laughs> shrimp scampi. You can't beat it. Ooh. Uh, you can't talk shrimp scampi around Sylvia Earl though. Really? Is that not? Oh, sh shrimping is just devastating uh -huh. the ocean. Yeah. I, I am yeah. aware of that. I, you know, I am. And, uh, you know, uh, well, I won't go into it, but down on the Texas coast, the, the history of shrimping and the benthic impact and how it's changed the bottom and yeah. the productivity is really kind of devastating. But, and I might have overpromised to say Sylvia can get on this. I think she would do it if we're ever in town at the same time, but she's so busy all the time and running around the world trying to be, well, not trying to be, helping save all the oceans and being an incredible spokeswoman for the oceans, so... She's fantastic. But there are lots uh, of other people who would be great too. I mean, the the book I just finished by Vince Bissar about the world in a grain of sand. Ah, oh. yeah, I've heard of that oh. book and I really want to read it. I hear it's phenomenal. Pretty amazing. And then there's so many. The other part of this podcast I would like to do though is is talk with the people who are coastal leaders, coastal managers, people with whom we listen to as they talk about the coast. And kind of ask what you asked me, but ask them instead of not where did they, how did they get to this job, but what books inspired them? What things were there about the coast as they were growing up that are, are just important to them? I've asked that of people with whom I work, and one person just went on for 10 minutes about Contiki and how amazing that book was. And she would read it dozens and dozens of times and almost could quote passages from that, from Thor Heyerdahl's Trip Across the Pacific. Absolutely. I remember it well. Yeah. And it, for me, it was a book by Anne Lindbergh, Gifts from the Sea. 
that as an adult, it was just, it's a magical book to me. It's, it's different essays she wrote and mostly how we deal with issues, how we deal with our emotions, how we, how we go about our day. But each of them is taken from the starting point of a different gel, the Nautilus, the conch, and then writing about how that um, explains parts of our world experience. Yeah, it, it's it's really magical in and what I've, I, I, it's one of the things that I would like to better understand is the particular emotional resonance of uh, the land water interface and why it is the draw that it is, and the kind of people who are attracted uh, to that space. Um, I think your description of of how you experience the coast well before you arrive. You know, I, I know when I'm driving from Austin down to the Texas coast, when I've, when I've crossed onto the Texas coastal plain and the topography changes and the, the uh, humidity in the air starts to change and you start to see the light a little bit differently. And as you get closer and closer, you experience it, this in a, in a really, you know, visceral way. And at the, when you arrive, it's the, to me, the thing that always strikes me is the sound and the visual, you know, the fact that you can see the edge of the earth, what looks like the edge of the earth and the light. I mean, there's something, I, look, I love mountains. I love the hike, but the, the ocean landscape is, is a very powerful, uh, yeah, maybe because Tyler, what you're talking about is because we're from there and maybe that's it. Well, it's hard to know exactly why, but uh, there's no doubt that it is a powerful force. I mean, Peter, <clears throat> all those, what, a couple of years ago when we were cooking up this whole deal, you were reading Moby Dick yeah. and uh, the the opening uh, chapter is uh, – calls well, upon the power of going to sea yeah, and the sure. and in fact perhaps the necessity of it for some people just the, the the draw um it's like being pulled by a by some sort of grab force of gravity mm -hmm. and um i mean i think that that's true i mean i i would say that's true for me i mean personally i think that's why uh i'm so passionate about working in this space and i want to work in this space and i i and I wake up every morning and look forward to producing podcasts about this space. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, um, and Leslie, I mean, I just think that so many, I mean, we had Jack Davis who wrote the, the Gulf, uh, making book, of an American sea, the making of an American sea, um, Jackie Davis. And, uh, you know, he talks about, and he talked about on that, uh, interview another Nexwell uh, interview with Rob Nixon. He talked about how he uh, grew up near the Gulf and found, you know, basically found it to be a, a there, there there to be a moral uh, dilemma with how we treat that space, and that we had somehow marred uh, a very powerful and natural feature that was immoral. And, and he, he advocated in that podcast, which I highly recommend everybody go back and listen to, uh, the next well podcast with Rob Nixon. Uh, he talks about the, the kind of his, his feeling that it was moral. There aren't very many spaces. I mean, don't get me wrong. You can extend that feeling inland, but, the, sure. but the power to do that. And then of course, to motivate a, an individual, uh, to go and pursue what is probably from start to finish, I mean, certainly five years, maybe more of research and thought before you even put pen to paper, the, the amount of, of time. And he actually talks about his, his, his method of composition and, and how he started. Um, and, and Leslie, just as you said, it was, it was initially rooted in other books he had read and other uh, in fact, his own uh, favorite pieces of coastal literature. So there is a there is a kind of spiraling um, energy build that I think happens, and you know we need these books 
uh, in the coastal community because they give us uh, they because it take for one I think it's it, unlike I, boy I love film I love the power of film I've done film myself I think David Attenborough is a genius I love what he does I watch everything no, yeah. that comes out um, but there's something the time that it takes to read a book the the state of mind that it puts the reader in uh, the relationship that is developed that is built between the the author and the reader is is different and uh really a, a, a powerful force that we that we rely on and I, I don't know if i'm unique in this but i'm pretty sure i'm not that there are times when i found all i could do was sort of read because i can pace the input to my what i could handle you know after 9 11 i think a lot of us were just so shaken that it it went to fundamentally what we could pay attention to. And I found I couldn't do anything but read for a while. Couldn't watch television, couldn't listen to the radio. All I could do was read because if it got too much, I could just put it down. And there's something about books that give you that start and stop ability that you don't get with other media. I mean, I feel compelled to watch the television when it's on. It just takes up my all my energy and focus. If you go to a movie, you're not going to just walk out and come back four different times later and get different segments of it. Even if you've got a something on Netflix, you're you're not inclined to just let it stop and start, but you just feel comfortable doing that with a book. I think you're right. It's the it's the processing time and the thinking time, and as a medium of communication, uh, there's so much imagination at work when you read. At least for me, uh, and I think this is true when you're reading any great literature and you're reading a, a scene that is being described to you. You picture it. Uh, there's the physical imagination of the space, and then there's the emotional connection to the characters and what they might be thinking or feeling. I mean, there is a intimacy to, to novels that is, uh, that is different than other ways to communicate or other uh, art forms that I think is notably different and uh, meaningful. And, you know, I don't know if this is it, one of the reasons I think books is a great framework for thinking about shorelines, the American shoreline or the shorelines around the world, is that steadiness of it versus, you know, kind of the day-to-day dynamics of the shoreline. Um, How do you step back and breathe into it and try to understand it and look at the the longer term and the bigger picture? Um, Nonfiction and fiction books, literature, how we've understood it, interpreted it, experienced it, how it's worked in society, how it works economically, environmentally. I mean, man, what a palette, Leslie. What a great palette. And I think your experience and and the time that you have spent um, really drilling down into these topics and issues and having fought through them all um, is going to make you a fantastic guide in this realm. I'm just, I'm convinced of it. Well, I'm glad you've got that support for me. But Tyler, you mentioned early on that um, you mostly do listen to podcasts. You like film, that your your way of taking in information is part of the millennial generation. And so I'm also going to be intrigued to know how some of the younger people who will be on this podcast, I hope, what they think about the future of books. I mean, is this going to be something that in 50 years people are going to recognize as still a a viable medium? Or is it going to be a, oh, yeah, sort of like those LPs people used to play, that vinyl stuff, which is making a resurgence. But where will books be in 50 years? Will that be what we pay attention to? That's really very interesting. And, you know, I, I look forward to uh, hearing what you what you learn. Um, you know, I, I, I will just say that 
uh, I think there will always be a place for writing. Um, the deliberate choice of each word, each sentence, the order of the thought, the one paragraph A to paragraph B, I think that that kind of structure and deliberation in composing our thoughts uh, has a is artistic and has a beauty that uh, we will always uh, find appealing and turn to to uh, tell stories and to convey information, um, especially information that needs to be precisely conveyed. Uh, uh, stories from history, uh, uh, all sorts of uh, all sorts of, of different types of not uh, uh, suitable for a lot of. I don't think there's any risk. I, I do think it the segments of the population that communicate through books is maybe evolves, maybe, uh, but it's too good a medium. Like I say, it's a handcrafted. It is an art form that is crafted, just like a sculpture is crafted, just like a. A painting is is crafted. Uh, it is such a complicated thing to do well, and uh, I love good writing. God, I just think. I mean, I tell you, when I Leslie, I did not. I will admit, I I spent um, a couple of months on Moby Dick as a book, and I have not finished it. I will be completely honest. It is a densely written book. And I would find myself, you know, reading a chapter four times and, and just trying to draw out the meaning, the depth of meaning that was in. I mean, I would read this sentence and I would just stop and go, the number of ideas that are being, you know, presented in this one sentence is, is stunningly rich. I mean, it, I just thought that was a masterpiece. And, um, Part of it is the time period of the language, but uh, I have not finished that book. I, I'm <laughs> I'm still going back to it and you know reading the cliff notes and trying to figure out what was chapter thirty two really trying to do. <laughs> it's tough. So I've got a, a maybe not sorted history with Moby Dick, but and I think about sixth or seventh grade, I decided I was going to read that over summer vacation. And being a cocky little kid, I told my friends I was going to do that. And so I took it out of the library and I had my copy of Moby Dick and I was going to read that thing. And I lost it. I couldn't find it anywhere. I had my library book and then it was gone. And to this day, I think some of my, my school friends must have taken it from me because I was just being such a little twit about, I'm going to be Bobby Dick. I'm really, I'm going to do this. It's the biggest book in the world. I had to pay the, I had to pay the library fine on it. I had to buy, essentially buy the book for the library because I couldn't give it back. And I've never read Moby Dick because of that. But if you finish it, you finish that book, Peter, I will make it a point to read Moby Dick for really? the first time in my life. And when we next see each other, we'll be able to talk about it. Okay. Well, and I was hoping, That's Leslie, that you'd say that you'd have Herman Melville on the pod. <laughs> <laughs> well, my Ouija board will work on that. Yeah. <laughs> we got Herman on and You're talk out about in California. There's some stuff that happens out there. <laughs> no, but, you know, I, I I bought it in Sitka, Alaska, when I was on a I was uh, uh, on a trip up there, and I was talking to this guy who was a uh, captain of the boat I was on, and he absolutely said, I read this every couple of years. It is endlessly, you know, the, the, the amount of stuff I get out of this is never over. And uh, so we, we stopped in Sitka and there was a great bookstore there. And uh, so I kind of marched in and bought my copy of Moby Dick and, and plowed in. And uh, I have to say, I have not, I have not mastered that and uh, I need to go back to it. It's uh it takes a lot of focus uh, to read that book, I think, at least for me. I, you know, I was a biology major, so I, my excuse is when I went through high school and into college, I mean, of course, I took the standard number of classes about books and literature, but, but I was not well-versed in American literature, and I wasn't a big uh, fiction reader at all. 
Uh, and I feel like I missed a ton. Um, and I'm trying now in my more mature part of my life to, you know, catch up with all the great literature out there. Try Treasure Island if you want something light, but also very interesting. Yeah. Let, so Leslie, we like to play the game, the, the top five game, which I know can be difficult, but, and, and the ra- let's just leave the ranking part out of it. But do you have uh, <clears throat> a few, a few titles that you would say are on, you know, commonly reached for on your bookshelf that you, you would point to and say, boy, these are, these are the, the inspirational texts that I find myself pulling, you know, turning to time and time again. Sort of, but I mean, I'm a coastal engineer. So I get back to Bob Weagle's book regularly, but that's not anything that anyone's going to, read at night and go, oh, wow. He he just explained that wave transformation so well. I can't believe it. So, I mean, for, for professional reasons, I'll go back to his book regularly. And there are professional books I'll go through that are, that are like that. Dean and Dalrymple for wave motion. But that's not what you're getting, I don't think. I well, think you well no, I think that about. counts. I that think counts. that counts. And what was the name of, okay. of Weagle's book? Because I don't even know. Oceanographical engineering, and then what? If you mm-hmm. if you if you don't mind, just tell us a little bit about what it is about the. Is it the? So you said you know, it. It is his writing that you're uh, that uh, you're uh, drawn to the way that processes are explained clearly. Is that is that what it is? Mm, no, it's that that was the book I learned. I, I, you, Bob Weagle was the one of my faculty people when I went to Berkeley and studied coastal engineering. So it was his book I learned from. And so that's the sort of go-to reference text. He explained things well. He referenced things amazingly well. So that if there's stuff you don't understand that he's trying to explain to you, you can go back like four or five different levels and look at other other people's references and discussion. But it's 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 a good text. It's out of print at this point. Dean and Dalrymple is also a very good text. I think it's a little bit more readable. Paul Comar's books are are perhaps more readable because they're talking about the shoreline and things you see and understanding the stuff that is visibly changing rather than getting into the physics and the dynamics, which you'll get from Dean and Dalrymple or from Weagle. Well, you know, we, we had the privilege, and I think that is the right word, the privilege of uh, interviewing Paul Komar at, uh, at the ASBPA conference in October. Um, and I, I, how you described his book, I have not read it. I, uh, we laughed at the fact that it was on Amazon and it was about two or three thousand dollars a copy now. But, um, but you could tell this was a person who looked at the world uh, partially from an artistic perspective and and definitely from a moral perspective. And as a scientist, it was a really interesting uh, juxtaposition of views that I just I. I absolutely uh, that I just really enjoyed talking to him and getting to know him as uh, in the very brief time that we had. Um, I'm trying to get I've 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 been pestering him with emails about trying to become a regular guest because he's an insane film uh, filmophile <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. I want to do I want to do fillets and film. I said we'll do a podcast. You come on every three months. We'll talk about some sort of coastal process thing, you know, some fillet, environmental, whatever, and then we'll talk about film. And I think it would be a great. <laughs> so far, he has not taken me up on that, but I, but I think he should. <laughs> the offer stands. The offer stands. Yep. One of those really easy to read, but you learn so much books is, again, it's an older book. It's Willard Bascom's Waves and Beaches. And he was an amazingly good writer. And there are there are people like that now that are just starting to bring that to the 21st century of talking about the coast 
One of my other sort of go-to books is one of Sylvia Earle's early, early books called Sea Change, just writing about the oceans and, and the things that have happened to what we expect from the ocean and, and all the creatures that live there and how we have how we humans have been able to exert such influence over this amazingly vast ocean that most people think is just too big for us to be able to influence whatsoever. And yet we can decimate fisheries and all sorts of stuff. We are so long past the notion of uh, dilution is the solution to pollution, which was, boy, the world's a big place and we're small and we really can't change it. Uh, we are seven and a half billion as human beings. We will be, uh, we double about every 30. I forget what the rate of doubling of the, of the human population is on the planet. It's, it's of course, exponentially growing. And uh, we are fully capable of changing it all. And uh, in fact, in, in my time up in Oregon, when I was in, in law school in Oregon, studying environmental law, it, I had this sort of, I don't know if this is true or not, but the sense that the, that, that the truth of the physical world around me was a choice of human beings now. Like every forest that exists in Oregon exists because we decide that it does. It doesn't exist as an, as a, as a, as an, an entity, an idea, uh, an existence. It is a choice of policy and politics and economics. Every single tree. We have the capacity to take them all. Uh, and we don't. We have the capacity now technologically to take all of the salmon that come into Bristol Bay, more or less, but we decide not to. These physical spaces now are defined by um, our own human sense of value and limits that we place. But uh, there's almost nothing we can't take apart. I mean, I think we're well past the point where the, or, you know, it doesn't mean that a hurricane can't come along and just kick our ass, but it means that we can, we can take whatever resources are out there on this planet and use them um, technologically if we're capable. Yeah. Well, years ago when I was in planning, there was a guy named Garrett Harden. Well, he wasn't in my planning class, but he wrote a book or an article, sorry, called Tragedy of the Commons. That's what you're getting at, that all these common things that are important to us collectively and the tragedy when we start taking those for individual purposes to the point that they're not there anymore. And that we do have, um, fortunately, we've, we've managed to self-regulate as, as a species a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, definitely not, uh, not to the level that I think would adequately compensate for our, uh, for the actual tragedy. Our, our voracious appetites <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, for, for things. Exactly. Well, Leslie, I, I want to, uh, uh, close and talk a little bit about um some of your you're obviously a, a, a consumer of coastal literature you read voraciously uh do you write are you uh are you writing uh about the coast as well as reading about it i write portions of staff reports for my job i do that type of writing the fun writing I do right now is I get to write four editorials a year for Shore and Beach. But no, I'm not. I'm not putting together anything else. I wrote for my dissertation, and that was a a long slog. So I I kind of stopped writing for a while. But how long now have you been uh, doing Shore and Beach? I think it's been eight or nine years that I've been the editor in chief. I was on the editorial board for maybe five or six years before that. That is that is so cool. I mean, I, I'm sure our audience is well familiar with Shore and Beach magazine. Uh, do is there a web for 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 audience members who aren't? Is there a website that they can go to to learn more about it? It's part of the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association organization. So it'd be www 
asbpa.org. asbpa.org. Learn more about this great uh, publication, Shoren Beach, uh, a scientific journal, I guess it's safe to call it. And uh, Leslie's been there for quite a while um, as the editor-in-chief. Uh, to, so in your time doing that, you've, you've encountered a lot of, you've been reading and working with uh, contemporary coastal writers. What's your assessment of uh, content that's being written and, and produced these days? I think it's getting better. Or it's, it's as good as it's ever been. We've got a lot of very dedicated members in Shorn Beach and the organization and in the community who want to share what they've done. That's, to me, the real strength of the journal is that we have members writing about what they've done on the coast that they think has been good, about the projects they've done that have helped the shoreline, projects where they've learned maybe um, how to do things better, and then also a huge amount of data collection and, and providing of information after major storm events. One of the things we do really well, I think, in Shorn Beach is collect data after hurricane events. We know we're not going to stop hurricanes, but we can certainly learn from them, learn how the beaches change and see where different types of shoreline treatment have been more or less effective. And we've got lots of great historic information about many parts of the coast. If people go to the beach and want to know what that beach looked like or what was going on in that beach 50 years ago, we probably have an article in the archives of Shorn Beach that talks about that area. And so it, it provides that real world reference of what's happening along the shoreline. That's just so valuable. And uh, I've actually got, I don't, I don't believe that these, some of, some of, some of the, I have the, uh, 1999 sand goodness i forget the name of the conference the it, sand uh sand wars conference that was out up there in california it that was, was in it that was, was orville no, no, sand rights. Sand yes, rights. Sand rights. i've got the sand rights book which I, I believe uh has a number of papers in it that were uh included in shore and beach and that was that was quite quite the conference i understand back back then also in ventura uh at the uh, Surfers Point at the hotel right there, which used to be the Holiday Inn. It's now something different, but uh, that is friends of the pod will definitely know that uh, we've spent some time out there studying that point. Um, yeah, it's a tremendous resource. Uh, Peter, if we're talking about Shorn Beach, you got to talk about your favorite Shorn Beach paper right now. <laughs> well, you know, lately, Leslie, I've had a hard time not talking about uh, the article on Florida Beach Economics done by Dr. Houston, uh, which was, I think, in the second issue of 2018. Is that right? Sure. You know which one I'm talking about? <laughs> where he tabulates up the value of uh, the tourism economy in Florida. And he did just such an extensive analysis of, of what the revenue streams were that are derived from uh, uh, shore-based or, or shoreline tourism. Um, and it's stunning. And it's, it's part of the, you know, the foundation and the justification for the, the investments that need to be made in the American shoreline. So, uh, I just think uh, Shore and Beach is, is great. And, um, you know, all the folks out there in graduate school, the men and women who are studying either engineering or high, uh, geology or, you know, coastal ge geology or hydrodynamics and things, uh, if you're looking for uh, an insight into the professional world, Shore and Beach magazine is fantastic or the journal is fantastic. 1933 <clears throat> when it started. Yep. Yep. The first, I guess, few days, or actually back then, I, I, basically, Hoover was still president <laughs> to Roosevelt. That's where we're, that's when it started. It's been yeah. going strong. Well, listen, Leslie, I want to thank you uh, on behalf of all of the other hosts to join the, the, the family, the ASPN community, and to bring your perspective and your voice uh, and your experience uh, to the network. Uh, 
is a, a tremendous benefit for all of the hosts and and all of the listeners out there. Uh, and I also want to thank you for we'll be seeing you in March. Uh, the introduction to the International uh, Ocean Film Festival in San Francisco, uh, March 7th through 10th. And uh, we're going to be covering that, Leslie, and, and talking to filmmakers out there about what they're seeing in the uh, in the world of the coast and the ocean uh, universe. And uh, want to thank you for, for helping us get uh, in touch with that community and so we're really looking forward to being in the bay area in march and getting a chance to sit down with you and uh i'm sure we'll have a show uh on aspn on the shore words podcast before then and and just really thank you so much for for well thank you for letting me part letting me be part of aspn and i hope shore words gets going quickly i'm ready Winds gonna blow to